Welcome to Doing Your Business with Matt Hartman, a podcast where I talk with founders of profitable businesses. Today we're talking with Steve Graff, co-founder of Banshee Wines. Now, I've known Steve since college, and he is extremely humble, so it was like pulling teeth to get him to admit that Banshee was ranked among the top 100 wines by Wine & Spirit magazine. As always, please leave me a voicemail or send me a text message with comments and analysis at 646-779-1234. In a few weeks, I'll release a debrief episode on Banshee. Let's listen. Today, joining me is Steve Graff from Banshee Wine. Hey. Thank you so much for, for taking Thanks some time. Thanks for having me. Banshee Wine is actually a number of different, you have a number of different products now. It started with one product, one item, it was a Pinot Noir uh, in 2009. We made one wine, we made a couple hundred cases, and we sold it out in two months. And that kind of sparked our curiosity as to how we could grow it. Banshee Wines is, a, is an LLC, and we not only have a winery called Banshee, where we make, you know, the Banshee wines. Under Banshee LLC, we have a couple other businesses operating under other DBAs. So there's Rickshaw Wines, which is another set of three wines. And then there's also Valkyrie Selections, which is a set of wines we import from Europe, bring to the U.S., and distribute throughout the U.S. Everything's a DBA of Banshee Wines LLC, and then there's Banshee Wines, the winery, as well. And that first wine, were you? Did you have a vineyard? Did you import the grapes? How did you? No. How did you make it? The first wine, we actually, we didn't make most of the wine. We we did a blend of uh, other people's wines. So this was just after the this was just after 2008 recession, and there was a company called Crushpad in San Francisco, and their whole model was. You could be a virtual winemaker from your desk in New York or your desk in Texas, and you could t call up uh, Crushpad and you'd say, I want to make you know, 25 cases of Pinot Noir from the central coast of California. I want heavy oak. You know, I want this price point. And they basically like put it all together for you. And you could come fly out and help if you wanted, or you could literally just sit back and put your name on it. And <clears throat> so we had a relationship with Crushpad, and... What happened to Crushpad's business model is when the recession hit, all the people that were spending money on making personal wines cut that out of their budget. And so all of a sudden, Crushpad had amazing Pinot Noir already in barrel that wasn't sold. And our friend and business partner worked there at the time, so he was like, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity here because there's great Pinot Noir that basically doesn't have a home. And... So the three of us, Baron, Noah, and I talked kind of informally at first, just like, you know, what, what can we do with this, hypothetically speaking? Then we actually started kind of going to specifics and saying, well, if we actually wanted to do this and sell some wine, what price would we offer Crushpad for this? And kind of we worked backwards from there. And at the time, were you, what, were you, what were you working on full-time? So at the time, I was a brand manager for a French wine importer, Martins Wines. And so I was doing importing of French wine and distribution of French wine based in California. My brother-in-law, Baron, also my business partner, he was working for a Spanish wine importer, and he was their national sales director. So he had contacts throughout the whole country with different distributors. And then Noah was at Crushpad, and he had the winemaking and marketing savvy. We knew that in the market, 
because Baron and I had have sales experience basically through our whole careers it was in wine sales. So we knew the market and we knew that if you could produce a Pinot Noir that was like around 20 bucks on the shelf retail, but it looked like it was 40 or 50 bucks from the, the size of the bottle, the image on the label, everything looked, felt, tasted like twice as expensive as it was that we could sell it all day. And so we kind of worked backwards from $20 retail. In the wine business, you have to go through three tiers. So you have the, the end tier is either the restaurant or the retailer, and that gets it to the consumer. One tier before that is your wholesaler, and then the tier before that is your winery. So you have to build in margin in each of those stages so that you can have a successful partnership with other distributors. So we had to work backwards all the way to the winery level and kind of come up with a cost of goods that made sense. You mentioned something I thought was interesting, which was that when you first got started, you worked backward from that price point on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the bottle looking like it was... Twice as expensive. What are the attributes that people make these decisions on? And I think you know, the broader kind of question here is, does the wine matter? Does the, is, it a product, is it a product company or is it a marketing company? We do both. I think if you ask anyone in the wine business who is successful at distributing wine, they would say that, yes, your wine has to be great wine. But it's, that's not enough. And the, the problem is we can't, I can't be in every wine shop in the country selling, hand-selling my wine. So um, we have to create a marketing strategy around that product that is going to make people try that wine. And once they try it, they're going to see that the quality is fantastic. But you need to get over that initial hurdle of setting yourself apart from hundreds of other Pinot Noirs on the shelf. And so that's something that we take very seriously um, and have put a lot of thought into not only in Banshee, but also in a lot of our products that we import from Spain. We work with wine producers in Spain to create labels that will have better success in the U.S. market. So for those, so, so you have the companies that you're helping, that you're doing distribution for, is that how yeah. they think of you? Yeah, we're there, uh, for many of them, we're their sole U.S. importer, uh, and then we distribute throughout the U.S. for them. Uh, so we're, you know, the U.S. is a, a very large wine market, growing wine market. Um, a lot of this, especially in Spain, the economy there is very weak right now, so they rely heavily on exporting uh, wine, which is why it's such a great value, and, and one of the reasons it's such a great value. But you're, are you also helping them with their brand? Dude? It sounded like are you are you are they saying hey we have we have wine we want to create a bottle around it and and a, and, a, and a business around it? Yeah, I mean it's not always exactly like that. Sometimes it's we taste the wine, we love the wine, and we say, are you open to doing some tweaks with your label or letting us design a U.S. only label for this wine? And you have to, you know, broach that subject somewhat sensitively, and some people are open to it and others are not. But we've been very successful with this one winery. Their wines were just fantastic. We loved everything about them, and 
we were just missing the last piece, which was the their label was was not that good, and we made uh, we basically changed the size of the bottle. We made a liter bottle, and we put a screw cap on it, and we designed a new label, and we did a red and a white kind of uh, twin like set of wines, like a Viura and a Tempranillo. Line priced them, and the sales have, have like just tripled. I mean, it's just been like instant success, and the guy is super psyched, you know, and we're psyched, and we're we're so happy when we can work with people like that because it's helping them in the long run, and they don't have ego that gets in the way of it. So uh, there's other producers where we literally have gone to them and said, "We love your wine." And we're going to do our own label that we own. That helps us because we can eventually, if we wanted to switch the winery behind the wine, we could do that. So as long as that's a, it's a, basically we own the whole trademark to the to the brand, and we're just sourcing wine to fill it. Line pricing, what's that? Oh, just um, in that case, just having the the red and white be the same price, so it's easier to understand the market. So. They're both going to be twelve dollars on the shelf. You know, if if you had the same looking red and white bottles, and one was fifteen and one was ten, it'd be I don't know, just more confusing. So it's important to sometimes have sister products like that be line price. You talked about changing a cork to a screw cap. Hmm. Yeah, for one of the companies that you were advising on how to repackage the wine. It really has to do with what's the function that that product is filling. You know what what hole is that filling? So for this particular wine, he already had a name that that conveyed. He, he called his wine Fiesta originally, and the label was not good. But the wine was delicious and it was super juicy. You know, low on tannins, so obviously it was made to be like a party wine, Fiesta. And we love that concept in its root, but we thought it was executed. It could be executed better. So we thought, well, if it's a party wine. Why not have more of it? So let's create a liter bottle instead of 750 milliliters. And if it's a party wine, you just want to access it. So put a screw cap on it. It just it conveys to the user, this is meant to take this to the beach, sneak this into the movie theater. You know, like this is meant to be accessed. It's not you're not going to like swirl this, you know, for 10 minutes and and wax philosophical about it. You want to fucking drink this, and it's going to be delicious. So it's really just kind of. Finding that whole, you know, what what are you going for? What what's the use for this wine? Are you doing research to f- figure that out? Are you guessing? Are you testing it in any way? <laughs> I would like to say we do research, but we don't. We we kind of guess. A lot of it's informed by what else is going on in the market and other trends and and what we see people grabbing off the shelf. What what what's successful? We don't have a lot of time or resources to do a whole lot of R and D traditionally something I'd love to devote more resources to in the future, but right now we're just trying to sell wine. So we kind of just, you know, we'll test it. If it doesn't work, we're flexible enough that we can pivot. And, you know, there's certainly been labels that we've changed three times because we could, we haven't gotten it quite right. So Banshee was one of those, like, immaculate conception types of packaging. It just, like, it came together, and the branding was just amazing from the beginning. We are just like... We're not going to ever touch this. I think you've done a pretty phenomenal job with the Banshee brand itself. Thanks. 
it's something that people know. When I talk, when I talk to people who go to who go to California to visit wineries or to go to tasting rooms, Banshee is a known entity. Mm-hmm. How did you how do you break out in what seems like an industry with literally thousands and thousands of of different brands? It's a mixture of having really great relationships throughout the whole country. So because we get friends texting us constantly from this city or that city, oh my God, your wine's on this label or this wine list. Um, So first we have to find really good partners that are like us in, we can't, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to go hand sell all our wines in every restaurant throughout the country. So we find really good partners in every state that we can that get us, get our brand and go find restaurants and retailers that are similar to them. So it's like, it's like dating. It's like finding, um, compatible partners that share your values, you know, and share your kind of outlook on the wine world. What are you looking for? Deliciousness, value, um, style. And we've been able to kind of find this network of, of great people and partners. And that has allowed us to have a really wide coverage. And then I think you have to have the brand that itself sticks out in people's minds. And Banshee, I think the name people remember for some reason, it's just like a different, it's a word that I think people recognize, but they don't have a a, um, previous kind of conception of what it is. So it it just kind of like sounds familiar. And the the image just kind of sticks out on the shelf. It's just like this crazy little bird thing. And just like, it's memorable. And you need that like little thing to, to just, finally catch people and so that they reach for it or they see it on the wine list and they order it. I've heard of that. What is that? I totally think it sounds familiar. <laughs> Even I remember when you were first starting it, it seems like it had been there for a while in yeah. a weird way. It, it's a really, like, I wish we could say we had this huge marketing plan behind that, but it was literally the nickname of my business partner's dog because he was a howling, like, yelping mutt and his and Noah's wife was always like oh my god Ban- uh, Bosco it was the dog's name is such a little banshee and Noah just thought man that's such like a it connotates this wild energy and this wild spirit in truth it's like this Celtic spirit but no one really knows that except the Irish my whole life I had heard maybe the term like screams like a wild banshee or like a wild banshee and I, I actually had like a Native American association with it but um I think people, for some reason, have that expression in their head, and we thought it connotated really well to what we were doing. You talked about the three tiers of, you said it's a three-tier industry. Yeah. So it's the producer? The wholesaler, and then the, uh, it's retail or a restaurant, but that's, they're considered the same tier. A wholesaler is a distributor? Is that the same thing? Yep. Can you talk a little bit about the margins? 30%. Is 30%. Yep. And then they're going to go out to the retailer. Then the retailer is going to take that price that the wholesaler just sold it to them for. And the wholesaler is getting their 30%. And the retailer is going to mark it up 33%. And then the craziest margin is in the restaurants. And I love restaurants. but And the fact of the matter is it's really hard to make money just selling food. So restaurants have to mark up their liquor to make their money. 
but wine lists generally you'll have a markup of anywhere from uh, two to three times the the bottle price um, on the list. Sometimes a by the glass, a wine by the glass, whatever that price is, say it's a twelve dollar glass of Pinot Noir, usually means they've bought that bottle from the wholesaler at twelve dollars. So they're covering their cost on the first glass that they pour, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then the liquor is even crazier. The margins there. But liquor feels easier to hide because you're mixing it with things. It, it's like, oh, well, it's a martini, so I don't know how much vodka is in there. And, and well, whatever. and you know, um, liquor isn't dependent on climate. You know, it's not an agricultural product for the most part. It's more of a marketing product. I mean, there are certainly artisanal spirits, but uh, a lot of it has to do with marketing positioning. And you think that's true much more of liquor than it is with wine? Absolutely. It's a. It's. If I would go back, I'd probably start a liquor brand because the margins are way bigger. You don't have pressure like drought and water and uh, just climate kind of messing with your harvest you just kind of get grain and uh <laughs> distill some things 12 years later you know. <laughs> yeah we, we love tequila we drink a lot of tequila uh as a company so we for a little bit we played around with the idea of trying to create a tequila brand we'll see maybe someday what would what would hold you back from doing that time there's about eight of us full-time selling all that wine we're investing more in salespeople as we grow because we just need to. In my ideal world, we would, as we grow, also add, like I kind of mentioned, more research and development, kind of strategic planning where we're thinking about more down the line. What are we trying to, what else do we want to try and build with this? The last thing I want to ask you about is about the tasting room. We haven't talked a lot about that. This was important for us because, because we were... We didn't own any, vineyard, any vineyards. We don't have a traditional winery where you can come see us pressing grapes, you know, or whatever. We knew that there was a gap in the consumer's mind that we need to complete. And that is that when people think of a winery, they think of the vineyards. They just have that romantic ideal kind of in their heads. And while we don't pretend to own vineyards, we wanted to have something that could complete that gap as far as like, who are the people behind this and what, what is their place? What is their, how can I physically think about them? You know, and we opened the tasting room to basically be a physical representation of, uh, of who we are. And, uh, Healdsburg itself is a really fantastically cool, small town in, northern Sonoma County and we were already based there and seemed like the perfect place to because it gets a lot of traffic from people in the city or a lot of people visiting from out of state and it's the right kind of demographic it's very upscale but casual I guess I would say and that's kind of how we want our brand associated with and we found this amazing space right off the main square of Healdsburg which is kind of like this got this great little square uh, town square with shops and restaurants and um, we designed it to be everything we didn't want to see in other people's tasting rooms basically there's kind of this formulaic way that people build tasting rooms i think just have done throughout 
the eighties and the nineties that was very like stiff and you kind of walk in and there's some tchotchkes and there's like this wine bar and you kind of come up and there's like a laminated, you know, list of wines and you can like select what you want to taste. And then there's this awkward like situation at the end where it's like, okay, well, do you want to buy? Or like, it's just, it just never felt fun. Like when I, when I went wine tasting. And so we wanted our tasting room to be not that. And so we don't have a wine bar where you come up to, we have, uh, couch seating we have a communal table we have little love seats for and we we really kind of let people drive their experience so if they want to come in and share a flight and not talk to us you know we're happy to to service them our our people will come out and get them what they need at the same time if they want to like get into it and learn about our wines our staff will come pull up a chair sit down and go through the entire flight with them. So people have really found that to be a more relaxed way of experiencing wine and they stay for a longer time. They drink more wine than there. They buy wine. They join the wine club. Our wine club sales, uh, when we first opened the tasting room, I think we had 50, 40 wine club members, probably like most of you guys, my friends and family, you know, and, uh, once we opened the tasting room, we were adding, I think, 50 club members a month so the the growth in the wine club is alone justifies the price of the tasting room it's interesting as you were describing the tasting room i was thinking to myself you've put as much thought into it as into packaging the wine yeah and the scale must be enormously different and your focus on the brand i i think about the tasting room as being something that's as you said reflects who Banshee is. It's a physical place. Representation of, yeah. yeah but at the same time, it's so unscalable because it's actually a physical place. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like from the, from the wine club that it's actually, you can kind of take it with you. Right. Absolutely. And that's, that's the goal is to have people come experience of that in a very, again, limited geographic space, but then they can, they can purchase a piece of, of that experience in a way because they can get into the wine club and they get this beautiful packaged box with, we've sent out a um, kind of a mixtape recently in one of our wine club shipments of all these bands that we like to listen to. And, and so we're curating that wine club experience to be pieces of us in your own home. Do you think about your, you've called them users a few times, which I think is interesting. <laughs> Did I? No, I mean, in a good way. I mean, I think it's your consumers. Your, do you think of it as a community of people who love Banshee? Yeah, absolutely. There's, especially if they can come see us and get our vibe. I definitely feel like it's a likeness. It's a community that of people that we actually we stay in contact with and we'll go. Uh, we've had people offer to have us come to their house in Missouri and do a wine tasting for their friends and and we've done that and that's been really kind of successful a way of of basically getting our customers involved in helping spread the word and and the gospel so to speak you know it's hard to if someone's picking up a bottle in a store in georgia and they have never been to our tasting room maybe they don't quite get everything that that someone who's come and visited us does but we're creating that network and 
by having the taste room, which people can go to, then they kind of then are become proselytizers for us. So much of it really is about communication. You're communicating all of this stuff basically through a wine label at first. Right. And then through a tasting room. It almost seems like these are each little reflections of this core mission, ideology, whatever. You know, you, I, I know you, and so it's sort of, it's that personality that you've sort of infused into the brand, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think people latch on to things that are familiar to them and that they can see a piece of themselves into. That's, I think, the whole key of marketing is basically finding your audience, which is like finding yourself. The more you can find, get to the core of who you really are and who you really want to be, project that, then you'll find you'll get these little pings back and people will respond to that. That concludes part one of my interview with Steve. In the next episode, we'll get into more detail about how he financed the company, the cost structure of making wine, and the different distribution channels Banshee Wines uses to reach customers. If you have comments or analysis, please leave me a voicemail at 646-779-1234. Finally, if you've made it this far, please share the episode, the podcast. My website is dybpodcast.com. On Twitter, I'm dybpodcast. And my personal Twitter is at Matt Hartman. And again, you can always text or call me at 646-779-1234. I've already got some amazing voicemail responses to the last episode that I'm really excited to share. Talk soon.